Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 this evening. And that is on page 1001 in the Black Pew Bible before you, if you'd like to turn there with us. We are working our way through the book of Hebrews. Here at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and He spoke then and still speaks to us now through it, and most especially about His Son. Last week, in verses 1 to 4, the writer of Hebrews warned us not to drift away from Jesus uh, and so miss his great salvation. Instead, he wants us to pay attention to Jesus, to trust Jesus. So in chapter 1, to highlight reasons to do so, he shows us the beauty of Jesus, especially in his divinity. He's the Son of God. He's of the family of God. He's nothing less than God. He is God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the inheritor of all things. And even the angels serve and worship him. That's chapter 1. Having spoken so highly of his greatness in accordance with his divinity, he has to answer the question, what is the Son of God doing in such a humble state, in taking on human nature. What is he doing being born in a manger, uh, weak as a baby, wearing diapers other people must change, uh, nursing at a woman's breast, growing up only to suffer the miseries of this life and death itself on a cross. What, What is he doing? If he's... God. So here in chapter 2, he explains the greatness of Jesus in accordance with his humanity. And tonight we want to ask the question, why did God become man? And what does that have to do with us? Let me invite you to consider God's word from Hebrews chapter 2, tonight verses 5 through 9. This is the word of God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, Because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. 
And our Father in heaven, the grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Speak your word to us, we pray. Be our teacher. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Why did God become man? In the jungle episode of planet earth there's a fungus that destroys everything it comes in contact with it will land on an ant and the fungus will bore its way into its body make its way up to its brain and when it gets there in some mysterious way it releases something a message somehow to the ant that it should climb a tree compelling it and when the ant gets to the top it attaches to the top of the tree and the fungus begins to digest the ant from the inside out and eventually a mushroom-like thing will pop out of the top of the head of the ant and when the wind blows on the mushroom thing thousands of fungal spores are released into the air and they land on all the ants below and they destroy the whole community That is what the first man's sin, Adam's sin, is like. Like a spore set free by the wind that infects all, destroys all, brings death to all. But what is even more incredible about that nature story is that when a community of ants realizes that one of their ants has been infected, they will send an uninfected ant to remove the infected ant from the community so that community will not be destroyed. But in doing so, the uninfected ant will be infected. And that, at least in some measure, is a picture of the gospel. The only uninfected one gives himself for the infected. And in the language of our passage tonight, there's much more to say about it. Jesus tastes death that we might have life. And it's incredible, isn't it? The Son of God, eternal God, adding to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. God becoming man to bring mankind back to God by tasting death for us. This seems like a fantastical claim to people. It's a real stumbling block to people. Maybe you, like I, have parents, fathers even, who find this completely outrageous and objectionable and difficult to believe. It, after all, one might say, if there is a God, And I'm not conceding. They would say that there is. But if there is a God and he made everything, well, then of course he's massive. He's transcendent. He's majestic. He's awesome in power. He's spectacularly large. There is no way he would suffer the indignity, the humiliation of becoming weak and unimpressive like a human being. This is a real obstacle for some people. It's not a new objection to Christianity in our day. In the early church, there was a group called the Docetists, from the Greek word meaning to seem or to appear to be. 
They said Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't. Part of the reason they said that was they had a hard time believing that the infinite, eternal God of the universe could have experienced the humiliations of weakness, deprivation, suffering, and death. It's an extraordinary claim. They would have agreed with C.S. Lewis in what he says, but not in what he believed. Lewis believed in Jesus, but Lewis suggested that believing in the enfleshment of God and the crucifixion of God is like believing in one of us becoming an ant and then letting all the other ants kill us. And so the Docetists would have said Jesus was God, sure, but he only seemed to be. Man, he really wasn't. That's absurd. Now they also as many others did, had other reasons uh, for believing that the true humanity of Jesus wasn't a real thing because lots of people in the first and second century believed that matter was bad and spirit was good. And the soul being spirit was good, but the body being matter was bad. And what they really wanted was a kind of salvation that got you out of the body so that you were bodiless because that's bad. So that your soul could live on in purity and goodness. And in fact, they longed for that. And so, of course, if you hold that, then there's no way a good spirit being would take to himself evil matter. These are some of the reasons people object to this very idea. How could God, a good, perfect spirit, become human? And against all that, Hebrews insists the Son of God became man. Why is our question? To answer that question, notice how he answers these three questions. What does it mean to be human? What's wrong with humanity? And so, then what did Jesus do? I want to think about those three questions with you tonight. In verses 5 to 8, what does it mean to be human? It means dignity and dominion. The end of verse 8, what's wrong with humanity? Well, our rebellion has brought disorder and death. And so what did Jesus do? Verse 9, Jesus, the death eater, restores our dignity and dominion. Those three things. In the first place, verses 5 to 8, what does it mean to be human? God made humanity, male and female, in his own image with dignity and dominion over creation so that by a man our dignity and dominion needs to be restored because it's been lost. Notice the way he puts it. Now he begins with the issue of angels and he has to do that because he's talking about how much greater than angels Jesus is not just as divine but even as human. A human is greater than angels. So he begins there verse 5 for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. He's talking about that great salvation where we long for the fullness, the culmination of all that Jesus offers. Angels were not given dominion over the world. Mankind was at creation and in the coming future. The new creation. And he illustrates this by turning to a psalm. He says somebody somewhere says, and he's actually quoting Psalm 8 perfectly. He knows what he's talking about. He quotes Psalm 8, and so let me remind you of that, and perhaps you'll even want to turn to Psalm 8. It's very brief. He quotes a major chunk of it. It begins like this. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It begins with praise. That's the last line of the hymn too. It ends with praise. Praising God, the creator of all things. Then it says this. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. You hear the language of Hebrews. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now what's he doing? He's highlighting, again, the dignity and dominion of man in the original creation in the garden. The psalmist is exalting in that in verses 3 and 4. He's, he's marveling. He's thinking about the sun and the moon and the stars. And he's humbled by it. And he's also amazed that with those powerful creatures out there that God says, but I care about you most. I love you most of all. What is man? That you should be mindful of him, but you are mindful of him. Why would you do that? Why would you love me? This is what he's saying. Aren't we, we would ask, insignificant by comparison to Jupiter or the Big Dipper or black holes? We're tiny, we're weak, we're here and we're gone tomorrow. We're nothing. But God says, I made all those things and you are the crown of my creation. That gives us dignity. And he placed us in dominion over all these creatures. Verses 4 to 6 reflect the story of Genesis 1. You remember that he made us in the image of God, male and female. And what did he do? He blessed us and he said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God put us in authority. Part of God's plan from the very beginning was that we would be vice regents under him, exercising lordship over creation and managing it for his glory, even as we enjoy it. God didn't put that authority into the hands of angels, he's saying. He put it in the hands of Adam and Eve and their posterity. This is what we were made for. He put all things under our feet. Now, we don't see that very clearly now, and we'll come back to reasons why. They're obvious, but being, just pause there, being given this kind of dominion means life is full of meaning, and everything we do is full of meaning. It's full of significance. Now, you may have a professor, if you're learning, a teacher, or a book you have to study that makes everything sound really dull and boring and disinteresting. I get it. Maybe you don't have a personal taste for biology or math or poli-sci. You were designed, though, to understand the world and to care for the world and to shepherd the world, to master it without frustration, 
without lapses in memory, without thorns and thistles and obstacles. That dominion is, of course, wrecked by the fall, but we catch glimpses of it. And it's still our calling today, however terribly we handle it. And we need to be reminded of this, and sometimes we are in very unexpected ways. Um, Perhaps you've been watching the news top administrators the stories have told at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor announced a a new campus-wide policy that allows students to select quote their own designated personal pronoun administrators inform the campus community that they are expected to hear to adhere to those preferences the university defines a designated personal pronoun as quote a pronoun an individual chooses to identify with and expects others to use when referencing them. So, they say, you no longer have to be he or she, his or her. If you're a she, you can be a he. If you're a she, he, you can be a she. You can choose neither and be a z or a zer. You can, in fact, according to the policy, pick whatever it is you want. And with that, a student, Grant Strobel, a... The chairman of the Young Americans for Freedom Board of Governors changed his personal pronoun to this. His Majesty. And by university policy, both fellow students and professors are obligated to address him as His Majesty. Grant Strobel. Obviously done very much tongue-in-cheek. He confesses just to expose some of the absurdities of the policy as written, whatever you think of the politics of it. But ironically, it does capture, which is why I mention it, what you and I, all of us, actually were created to be. And the way we were to think of ourselves, not as His Majesty God, but under Him, under the King of Kings, Kings, and queens, in C.S. Lewis's language, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve were destined to be the kings and queens of Narnia. That's you. You were made to rule creation. Not, not to exploit it, but steward it. Not to destroy it, but to bring out its potential. Not to be enslaved by it, but actually enjoy it. You remember the story of Eric Little, famous, of course, as told in the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Little was a godly young man, loved the Lord Jesus. He was planning to be a missionary with his life. Uh, He's from Scotland, planned to go to China. He was preparing for that during his university days. But first, while he was still a student, he also excelled at running. His sister had very little patience, as the story is told, uh, for uh, his athletic endeavors. She wanted him to get on with the work of preparing to be a missionary, but first he wanted to run in the Olympics. And that story, of course, is told elsewhere. But he said this to her, God made me for China. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What is that but a, but a hint, maybe perhaps an unexpected hint of the dominion of body and track that we were made for? It's what we're built for, something. 
And so Hebrews reminds us this world that God has made was intended for us. A garden of delights, a playground, a nursery for for us to grow in and express our humanness and dignity and dominion. Well, we don't so easily see that, of course. What do we see? Well, he goes on, verse 8, he says, Well, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Here's the second reason God became man. Because of the disorder and death that man has brought and the suffering we experience as a consequence. What do we see, he says? We don't see everything under man's control. We don't see everything in subjection to man. We see disorder. We see death. We do not see everything in subjection. That's a kind of understatement, isn't it? And by the way, if you're following along, there is some disagreement here as to whether by the him, he's referring to Christ or to man in general or or man uh, in Adam to which this was all given. It's a bit of a toss-up, I think, deciding which. I take it that he's still speaking of man in verse 8. And that he moves to Jesus specifically at verse 9. You may disagree. I don't think the world will end if we disagree over that. Some do see it as Christ. In the time before the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the point then is, of course, that he is ruling from heaven. He's crowned with glory and honor over all things. But even now, though he is in charge of all things, we still see in this world the persistence of evil, the persistence of rebellion, the persistence of decay and death. And we could talk about why that is, but it is part of God's plan, and he is patiently waiting until we all come home who are going to come home. Others see it as referring to man. The thought of Psalm 8 continues. In light of our rebellion, we don't see these things. And in light of our rebellion in Adam, dominion is frustrated. The world is fallen. And we all experience that. In all kinds of ways. Of course, last year, the passenger side door handle on the inside of my Suburban quit opening the door. I had a simple and free solution to that problem. Just roll down the passenger side window, reach out your hand, and open the door from the outside. I'll roll the window back up after you've exited the vehicle. I, well, uh, I just told people, look, I I haven't gotten around to fixing it. Uh, It's a 99 Suburban. It's got 280,000 miles on it. I've got other things to put my money into than than a door handle. It isn't worth the cost of me. But what do I do now? Consider my dilemma. This week, the driver's side handle broke in just the same manner and for years now the driver's side window hasn't been able to come down but about that much no way I literally this week have been crawling over seats to exit rear passenger doors And then in a moment of genius, just in the last couple of days, I realized that I could, in fact, recline the driver's seat far enough, open the rear driver's side door, reach around, and open my door. 
and exit the vehicle. It takes a couple minutes, but it's free. You have similar stories. Not similar kinds of answers to your problems, I realize. I'm a preacher. Some of you are engineers and see me afterwards. <laughs> Why does everything wear out and break? Because of the fall. Because of our rebellion. The whole creation was plunged into decay, leading to death. As Aslan says in Chronicles of Narnia, fourth book, to Prince Caspian, speaking to him, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal said it this way, what sort of freak is man? Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, The glory and the refuse of the universe, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach both. And of course, the consequences of our rebellion are far worse than the things that I have mentioned. Broken handles is small potatoes. Frustration at work every day. Mold and mildew eating literally away at the siding of your home. Mice sneaking around your kitchen at night. The cat doesn't seem to care. Customers irate. Bosses unhappy. Books incomprehensible to your brain. Employees stealing your products. Family members estranged in bitterness of heart. Dementia and heart disease stealing us away, terrorists planting bombs to kill strangers. The world is a mess. Though we can manage certain aspects aspects of it, true, we are often mastered by creation rather than the masters of it. And Perhaps the single greatest testimony to our inability to manage the world in the way we were designed are the countless graveyards and cemeteries holding the bodies of the dead. We feel at mercy of time and the ravages of disease and death. Welcome to the human condition. And so, what did God do? Jesus became man to bring restoration. Through Jesus, the death eater. And I'm lifting that off of the pages of the Bible. Forget your Harry Potter world for a moment. These two things have nothing in common. But he tasted, he ate death on our behalf so that our dignity and dominion could be restored perfectly. We don't see man in control, he says. But what do we see, he asks? Verse 9. We see him who for a little while was lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What he's talking about is that in the incarnation, it appears that he is lower. He suffered death. He humbled himself and became like one of us. But in the resurrection, having returned now as the God-man, higher than the angels. As the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 3, he, Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. They are under his authority. He is already crowned with glory and honor as the head of a new age. That age began with his coming. That age will be consummated with his coming again. We live in the already and the not yet. Already he is exalted. Not yet has he made all things new. The new age is inaugurated. It is not yet consummated. But with the eyes of faith... The writer says we see Jesus with the dignity and the dominion meant for man. Because he's the God-man. In him we see the dust of the earth on the throne of the universe. That which was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. What the first Adam squandered, the last Adam recovered. In Adam all die, only in Christ are we made alive. That he had to die for us was because death is the punishment of sin. He'll talk about that at much greater length. That he would die for us, he says, well that's just the grace of God. That by the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, he might taste death for all of us. We're entering into perhaps your season, it's mine, most beautiful season of the year, arguably, leaves turning color. It's wonderful. It just doesn't last. Autumn will give way to winter. The trees will look dead. All the flowers will lose their blooms until spring. That cycle is so common to us, maybe even looked forward to by us, understandably, doesn't last that we can easily slip into thinking that all cycles we see in nature are normal and even to be welcomed we can even begin to think that that it's just a fine cycle of life that helpless infants grow into youthful saplings grow into stout young men and women who grow into the wisdom of the age and then they just decline and we bury them under the earth We comfort ourselves sometimes that they live to an old age. And we can can be thankful for that. It is a gift of God's grace that, uh, that some should do so. But the Bible would not have us content with that world. Psalm 90, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. We are a vapor. We are a mist. We were made for a world where strength lasts, and the gospel is the good news that our God has shared our experience, and Jesus has eaten death. He drunk its poison. He swallowed its bitterness. He has sucked the death out of death that he might breathe out upon us life, everlasting life, so that in Jesus, dementia, 
Heart disease, cancer, car accidents, and casualties of war do not have the last word about us. The prophet Isaiah gives us a prophetic vision from his perspective of that world to come when he writes in Isaiah, They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the world we long for. That is the world God made for us. That is the world man lost. And that is the world the God-man restores. Trust in him. And you will enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for our loving Savior who gave himself willingly to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Count us among them. Be gracious to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.